This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode is Wednesday, so it's PMQ's Unpacked. Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak going at it across the dispatch box. We pause the action today with Patrick McGuire from uh, Red Box. Don't forget you can get Patrick in your inbox every morning. As a Times subscriber, just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box and uh, sign up. Uh, right, that's coming up in just a moment. But first, it's time for this. The Columnists with Alibert. Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. The more we play the Albert jingle, the funnier Robert seems to find it. Oh, I just can't, I can't get over it. Robert, it's the fishmonger analogy, I think. Robert Crampton is here. Morning. Morning, Matt. And that's so is Alice Thompson. Morning. Morning. Um, so we need to talk, we need to talk about pensions, but yeah. don't turn the radio off because this is important. <laughs> um, uh, there was some suggestion. You look at the FT. Yeah, the there was FT. some suggestion yesterday that uh, Jeremy Hunt, the um, Chancellor was going to rush forward increasing the state pension age from 66 to 68. It's, uh, uh, but now they've decided to delay it. So it's due to increase to 68 from 2044. They were going to bring it forwards to 2037. Uh, but they've now pushed the decision beyond the next uh, next election. You can follow all that, then you'll yeah. do better than me. I mean, basically, uh, we are all living longer. The state uh-huh. pension was not there for you to live on for years and years and years and years. Um, but uh, I think the point of this story is that we're not living longer yeah. anymore. Ah, that's what's that, depressing is that yeah. actually life, ex- it, life expectancy has gone uh, down, as, as, not up, which is peaked. really sad. We peaked. peaked. Yeah, which it, is part. Here's, here's the story in the Times: Ministers yeah. are backing away from plans to raise the state pension age faster amid fears over falling life expectancy. Uh-huh. I think that's what's depressing. It's not the pensions; it's the fact that actually a life expectancy is going down at a time when it should be going up because medical advances. Yeah. I mean that most countries in the West it is going up. It's just we've got a problem with issues like obesity. It's obesity is the big one, I think, mm-hmm. and poverty. Yeah, uh, there was that report in the in the week saying you, you baby born in Hampstead is going to live yeah. twelve years 12 longer years than ones born in Glasgow. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, it, I mean, sixty eight seems. Like quite old to, to a lot of people, if you're gonna, but then if you're gonna, we're living to, I think it's 81 at the moment, yeah. about 79 for a bloke, about 84 yeah. for a woman, something like that. Uh, on the average, is sort of 81, 82, and that's maybe dropping a little bit. I suspect by 2045, it'll be probably be going back up again. Uh, we hope so, we hope so. 
It's also uh, the NHS. I mean, the problem is that our NHS is failing at the moment and yeah. that people are waiting too long in queues so and it, issues like cancer, if you don't mm, pick them up fast enough... Mm, um, it's possibly then, a blip. And we know that it's got to, it generally has to rise. I mean, the French are complaining because it's going from 62 well, to 64. But, but, but I suppose the... the uh, I mean, yeah, they're, they're starting from a lower base. Yeah, they really 64, are. We're, they're, not, they're not just complaining. They're right. I mean, they're rising. Right, but it's interesting <laughs> that the, the, the government here hasn't even attempted to do anything here. No. They just sort of want to go nowhere. But it's also because they can't get people there. over 55 in. So if they, they can't get people over 55 back to work. Yeah. What's yeah. the point in trying to get the sort of 68-year-olds back to work? Yeah. Because it is it's a mil- not going to happen. It's a major problem, though. If, you, if you're in full-time education, as most people are now, to 21... Yeah, uh, and then you are, and then you retire at sixty-six currently, and you live to be eighty-two. That's kind of half your life on, almost half your life on, on the state dollar. Yeah, yeah? which is obviously unsustainable. Yeah, yeah, and it's more than half because, as Alice says, most people don't retire way before sixty-six. But I suppose the problem is that you've got the people who can, who are you know, the poorest people who mm. are going to most rely on the state pension are probably the ones who are going to least. Be able to keep working, you know, because 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 poor health goes hand in hand with yeah. And if you're doing a manual, if you're doing a income, manual job, yeah, yeah. Uh, then it's you shouldn't be doing if that. If you're in a low wage, into your sixties, uh, low it, wage manual job, yeah, poor health, uh-huh. you're not be able to go on. In a yeah, no, you don't want to see people but, on building sites in their sixties. Exactly. Uh, so you end up with the with the well off people who've put loads of yeah. money. You've been sitting behind a desk with their feet up. Yes, uh, putting loads of money in a in a work pension they're uh-huh. the ones who are going to be able to retire earlier but mainly we just have to get people healthier don't we i mean that's yeah. the, the the shocking thing is the fact that our life expectancy what? is going down i mean that I, is just so depressing for everyone so i think we, main, yeah there's sorry i was gone i was gonna say i mean the, the thing that i want is i just think that health wise the government should help people to eat more healthily uh, and to take the right decisions and make the right choices because it's really difficult but we had henry dimbleby on yesterday uh, well, talking about exactly that and you know he came up with a strategy and he's long term you know some mm. difficult decisions but a lot of it's just about making decisions now that aren't going to pay off in the next six weeks. Probably not in the sexy, next six mm. years. But and that's what they've done this time. They dodged it. They punted yeah, it past the election. Punt it on. Yeah. Punt it on. Someone yeah. else will sort it out. But yeah. you can't turn I, the nation's <sighs> health in a single parliament. No, and all those problems. Like I mean, uh, energy was the big one. You know, nobody wanting to build nuclear power stations, so that got that kept getting punted down the road. And pensions is another one, and and transport is the other one, isn't it? You, yeah. you're, not, you're not going to see a political dividend. Within your training doctors, training yeah. nurses, all that's yeah. the same. It takes longer than a parliament, so it does, that's mm-hmm. over, um, childcare, childcare, copying for a bit. Yeah, no wonder Brits are so miserable, Robert. <laughs> I know. Just I what think, I've done. Yeah, there. I do. That's excellent. That was yeah. That was that was. We, we're yeah. slipping down the global happiness rankings. Yeah, we are. We're nineteenth now. This is. This sounds like a bit of a joke, but it's actually quite. Uh, 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 a re- an academically respectable report, uh, the World Happiness Report. It's done by a bunch of uh, economists on the basis of polling and uh, self-evaluation and then an- analysing that. And, and they take a whole load of uh, metrics into account. And we are now 19th out of... Well, there's more than, there's 137 countries surveyed. I think obviously there's more countries than that in the world. Afghanistan props up the table as well. It might. Finland is at the top. And we've been... It's our fourth consecutive drop... Uh, now, 19 is obviously not bad compared to Afghanistan or Sierra Leone, but it, in terms of comparable countries in Northwest Europe, we are markedly less happy than the Scandinavians and the Dutch. And, and is that a new thing, or are we just always just a bit more miserable? Uh, we're not more miserable. Can, we, 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 I think we've been higher than this in the past, yeah, yeah, comparably, yeah. Uh, but we're now relatively more miserable 
compared to other yeah, yeah. Country, comparable countries. But we're also the abs- absolutely more miserable in terms of our, our, our rating has gone, our overall rating has gone down. Uh, and it's hard to say, well, it's the pandemic or it's anxiety about Ukraine or it's cost of living because there's all, the other countries are all suffering that too. Uh, so I, I had a look at it and I think that the one thing that distinguishes us is uh, we've paid less. I mean, I think it's wage. I think, it, I think it's the economy. Stupid. Yeah. yeah. I think in uh, 2008, uh, average British household earned £500 less a year than the average German household. And now it's £4,000 less a year wow. than the average German household. So, And that's the reality I mean, when we talk about, you know, economic growth versus other countries yeah. and wage growth. You well, know, it's wage growth in particular. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously that means, you know, people are effectively getting paid less because of inflation. And I think, you know, people put up with that for quite a long time, uh, the whole austerity thing and the and in the private sector as well but now i, th- I think people are, are getting a bit fed up about it and i'm just basing it personally part, partly on my own experience because i'm getting a bit fed up with it. yeah <laughs> a bit fed up with dressing up uh yeah uh, and i don't want to be a paid more to look like an idiot <laughs> um, alice when david cameron tried to focus on this the happiness index uh saying that we should uh should look at well-being alongside gdp everyone sort of laughed at him and said it was ridiculous but actually it was, it's not a bad thing for the government to aim at no, Bhutan is one of their main indicators, isn't it, is how happy you are. And um, they're very successful at it, actually, I think. Mm. But I think the problem for Britain is that when uh, David Cameron first did that, we hadn't had, you know, war, recession, mm. pandemic. And now we have. And so I think, you know, it's hard to focus on happiness when everything else is sort of crumbling around you. Mm. We've still got, you know, inflation. If inflation was coming down, then we'd probably be slightly happier because, you know, we yeah. wouldn't be having such high food prices. I think people are really struggling and, and it's difficult because we are quite a lot of moments here anyway sometimes. Well, that's why I wondered whether we're just, we were just predisposed to be glass half empty. Well, I don't think we are because I think we we have been to a certain extent, but we quite enjoy moaning. And I think when you look at those (laughs) statistics that Robert had, that people actually admit that they're they're quite good. We were much higher up the scale. And now it's the Northern Europeans, actually, that do a lot better. And they they used to not because of those long winters um, and heavy drinking. And then they got electricity and then they were away. Precisely. And also it is is cost of living. And also, I think if you see the super rich, we have a lot of super rich in Britain. And I think that makes it even more difficult because we're looking at extreme wealth in Britain and also extreme poverty. And they know that if there's a correlation that, that actually if there's too big a gap between yes. the two, it makes you far less satisfied. And I think that's our problem, really. And I think also these the issues that we're talking about with the with the, you know we like we glibly refer to lying to Parliament there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean that must have an effect psychologically. That must kind of percolate through. That you know you think you don't really trust the great institutions of state. Yeah. That we used to think the rely we thought were basically looking after us. Yeah, we no longer think that really, do we? I mean, yeah, the dissatisfaction yeah. with the NHS is pretty high. Nobody trusts politicians anymore. Uh, you, if, you, if somebody was saying, we'll talk about this in a minute, but somebody was saying, you know, you, rape is more or less legal in London. Yeah. You know, judging looking at the conviction rates. Yeah, and that uh, these things don't exist. They doesn't exist in a vacuum. That has an effect on on your self confidence, your self esteem, your and your sense of kind of worth. Yeah. Also, I think the British just used to things going slightly better. So, yeah, there yeah. are riots in Paris and, you know, you, you see they're all going on strike. But actually in Britain, we haven't done that since the 70s. So there's a sense that we're going backwards. I yeah, think that's I mean, that shows a sense of real entitlement. Mm. And also a slightly imperious um, uh, view of everyone else. Oh, we don't, we, don't, yeah. we, don't, we don't give in to strikes and we don't have riots and we don't have politicians who refuse to yeah. accept reality. I mean, you know, 
is all of it, you know, and then suddenly actually... And we don't have corruption. I mean, yeah. that's another thing I mentioned, that on the, there's corruption yeah. is, is a big indicator of happiness because people feel that whether they're in control of their own destiny, whether they yeah. can be, rely on things to be fair. And housing, and, I think, and, is the and, other thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. if you yeah. can't get on the housing... You can't go on the housing without it. And allow your stuff, work. really. Yeah. But we used to be completely complacent about corruption, so Oof. that's something that happens in other countries. And we can't really say that anymore, can yeah. we? When the Prime Minister's trying to get his dad a knighthood? Yeah. That's the sort of thing you think happens in a, in a you know, uh, what we used to call the banana republic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not anymore. Alice, let's just make it in your column uh, today where uh, you've reflected on the appalling detail in the KC report that came out uh, yesterday about the state of the Met. But you think... Uh, there's a solution to this. Who should be put in charge? Well, I think Louise Casey should be put in charge because she has spent a year going through and looking at the Met and actually talking. And the problem is the Met hadn't talked to various people. It wasn't very difficult for her to find out certain issues. Some of them, the one about the fridge is extraordinary. So the, mm. the fridge is where all the evidence is kept in rape cases. They were bulging so much they couldn't shut them. It took three police yeah. officers to shut a fridge and people would put their lunches inside. Oh. So they'd be having these sort of half-eaten sandwiches contaminating the evidence. That's which amazing. is Really extraordinary. And that sort of detail, you know, they could have found out themselves, the police. They must walk past those fridges. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. what she's brilliant at is just asking people the questions. And I think she'd be very good at sorting it out. But also what she's brilliant at is including all of that stuff. So it's this is real people, real mess. It's not some abstract thing, structures and all that. And it makes us realise that you just wouldn't yeah. have that. I mean, even in our workplace, if God, if someone puts the milk in <laughs> and it goes off, everyone gets irritated. Can you imagine if you just had everything stuffed in there and all our well, Yeah, and it's a chain of evidence. I mean, the idea is that, that someday that might... Help yeah. to convict somebody, but it won't. Yeah, then the been... fridge breaks and it was all thrown away. Yeah. Anyway, it's a great column, and it's yeah, it's well worth. I think it's a great idea, and uh, you do wonder actually that maybe maybe people who've been in the Met for a long time might not be the right people to try and. They're looking that way. Uh, right, talking of uh, interrogated people, Boris Johnson's going to be interrogated today uh, by the Privileges Committee. So. What's the best approach? They've all been, both sides seem to have been uh, advised by some very expensive um, KCs. Mm. Uh, let's speak to Andrew Taylor. He's a barrister at Three Temple Gardens in London. Morning, Andrew. Good morning, Matt. So what are your top tips for Harriet Harman and her team when taking on Boris Johnson today? Well, first of all, we all know that Boris Johnson is a showboater. He's a, a Marmite personality. And what I suspect he will try to do is to try and talk and bluster and filibuster. And like all people in court, you need to bring them to book. You need to ask them simple, direct questions that demand direct answers. And I suspect we'll get precious few direct answers from Boris Johnson <laughs> today. If I was going to cross-examine him, I think I'd start off by saying, um, obviously, Mr Johnson, everybody knows you're a highly intelligent and articulate man. You accepted a criminal sanction for having a party and attending a party in number 10. He now seeks to say, well, I'm resiling from that. In fact, I don't think I'm guilty. I don't think I should have paid the fine. There were 80-odd people, in fact, who were issued with fines, who all paid them. And, of course, it's an acceptance of guilt. If you were charged tomorrow, Matt, with, say, parking your car on a double yellow line, and it wasn't your car, you wouldn't pay the fine. You'd say, well, no, the police have got this wrong. I'm challenging it. I'll go to court if necessary. You can take me to the cross, but I'm not going to admit something I haven't done. What Boris will do today is, I suspect, he will try to devalue Sucre because of our links with Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. He will try to devalue Dominic Cummings, but he will try to avoid questions. And the secret with all witnesses, if they try to become, if you like, um, difficult, is to bring them back to the central issue. I think the central issue is this. Anyone in this country, even a small child, would know that it was wrong to do what he did. You didn't need experts. You didn't need <laughs> senior civil servants to give you reassurance 
and to say to you what you're doing is right. Everybody knew it was wrong. And therefore, for the prime minister of all people, with his obvious intelligence and intellect, to stand there and say, well, I relied on other people. Yeah, Why yeah. did you rely on other people? Who were they? And of course, we know that of itself is wrong. Yeah. Not everybody said to him, everything you're doing, Prime Minister, is by the book and within the law. Alice, you've, you obviously know Boris Johnson, well. you worked with him many moons ago. Uh, how do you think of your approach today? Well, I remember we used to try and get him to file um, by deadline and there were always endless excuses and he was always two hours late, which meant the whole paper went late. And it got more and more difficult. And I think in the end, he only really understands that, that sort of really tough action. So it only worked when we actually put someone else's column in. And I think that's the thing. You just have to... You, you have to be really blunt with him because I thought the best line he had really was um, they didn't even sing happy birthday. And he was obviously upset about that. Yeah. You could see they didn't think they'd gone far enough. But it was tragedy that he was Prime Minister and they still couldn't sing happy birthday. So I think we have to say to him, look, you've got to face the facts. Yeah. You've got, you've got what to... did you do today, Robert? Well, I mean, he made the rules and then he did. Then he said he didn't understand them. So is he, is he an idiot? I mean, Well, that seems to be his defence. Yeah, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. And the, I, I didn't break the rules. I just uh, said were, things which I thought were true they were really complicated. the evidence of the contrary. Yeah. Well, they weren't really complicated. Yeah. As Andrew said, small child knew what the COVID yeah. rules were. And we actually this point, which seems to have merged now in the conversation, Andrew, uh, in recent days, is that... If he thought it was all fine, why didn't he say at the time? Yeah, yeah we had a gathering. It's very good yeah. for morale. Well, 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 he didn't. And I think the thing with Boris sometimes, of course, is that he's got away with an awful lot in his life, both mm -hmm. personally and politically. And I think he probably thinks to himself he was in an unassailable position. He had a majority of 80 seats. Mm -hmm. Electorally, he was fantastic. But, of course, what they need to do today, and this is a rather unusual jury. Most juries are chosen at random. This is a jury of seven that are absolutely partisan. Four on his side, three against him. So it's a very unusual pitch to start with. Yeah, although but I, I think they need I think, to keep uh, on hammering at I think Boris Johnson might, might dispute the idea that the four on the Tory side are necessarily on his side. Mm. Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson, then, of course, you can read them every week in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is PMQ's Unpacked. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. 
Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Patrick Maguire. Yeah, Red Box editor Patrick Maguire joins me. Patrick, how are you? I'm very well, actually. I ran for the uh, I ran for the train here, so I'm full of endorphins and ready to. <laughs> it was, you know, like James Corden at the end of a rom com running to declare his love to Sheridan Smith or something. Yeah, that's what I look like this morning. But it's PMQs. But it's PMQs. I'm ready to declare my love to Lindsay Hoyle and Keir Starmer and uh, Rishi Sunak. Very and good. Dave, if he gets called, and Lo- Stephen Flynn. Lots of people already watching along on the YouTube's. Hi from Cloudy Gravesend says Roger. Greetings from Ealing. Uh, bonjour from a rainy skein. So I don't know how to pronounce that. Hi from uh, hi from uh, Liverpool says Terry. Hi from Taunton says Stephen. Uh, James is in Stratford. Lou's in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, Cambridge. God, well, there's loads of you. Loads of you. Do put so do if you are watching along on the YouTube channel. Do uh, do let us know uh, where you are. Also, um, let us know how you think it's going and what uh, Keir Starmer should uh, have a go at. Uh, what do you expect? Uh, Keir Starmer to go on today, Patrick McGuire. I'd be surprised if he didn't talk about policing and crime um, because that's what the lesson, uh, that's the message rather Labour wants to land in the coming weeks. They think it's a big vulnerability for the Conservatives and I think they uh, do not want to get drawn into a back and forth about Keir Starmer's own pension arrangements, though I'm sure Rishi Sunak will find a way to mention them uh, regardless of the subject Keir Starmer goes on this afternoon. And I suppose that, rather than if he if he does crime and he's what he's making a big speech, I think tomorrow is yes. The, uh, the, um, at least that's sort of on his turf, rather than just like a commentator on internal Tory soap opera of Brexit and Boris Johnson. Yeah, exactly. And he did that last week. Remember talk, talking about how. Uh, in that difficult pre-budget PMQs, talking about Tory MPs as snowflakes and, uh, you know, cancel culture adherents for trying to whack Gary Lineker. So I imagine they'll want to move back onto the sort of thing, uh, what what people in Keir Starmer's inner circle call the things that matter. Um, and I'll be interested to see, Lindsay Hoyles told MPs not to talk about the Privileges Committee, stop putting pressure on the members. So it'd be a, maybe a surprise if someone brings it up? Yes, although I'd like to, someone I'm sure will try, uh, and Lindsay Hoyle, we can tell this morning, is afternoon rather, is on a short fuse. So that'll be uh, very entertaining when that eventually does happen. Uh, it's also, uh, I think it's six years since the uh, Westminster Bridge uh, attack, which I suspect uh, may well also come up today uh, in, in, their uh, opening, uh, in, in their opening statement. So here we are, then we can go live then to the House of Commons. Uh, we kick off with question number one uh, from Keir Starmer. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Today we remember the innocent lives lost six years ago in a terror attack on Westminster Bridge. Amongst those tragically killed was PC Keith Palmer, who sacrificed his life to protect others. Police officers up and down the country work tirelessly every day to keep us safe, and we thank them for that. But as we saw this week, those brave officers are being let down. Dame Louise Casey found institutional homophobia, misogyny and racism in the Metropolitan Police. I accept those findings in full. Does the Prime Minister? Prime Minister. Well, Mr. Mr Speaker, I join with the uh, Honourable Gentleman paying tribute to PC Palmer and indeed all the other police officers um, who have lost their lives serving and those who do so much to keep us safe. Uh, I was appalled, Mr Speaker, to read the descriptions of the abhorrent cases of officers who have betrayed the public's trust and abused their powers. And let me be clear, it is and was unacceptable and should never have happened. 
We have taken a series of steps already, and the Government will also now work with the Mayor and the Metropolitan Commissioner to ensure that culture, standards and behaviour all improve. At the heart of this matter are the people whose lives have been ruined by what has happened, and I know the whole House will agree with me that it is imperative that the Met works hard to regain the trust of the people it is privileged to serve. I mean, this goes right to the heart of the question, uh, by the long list of people there that Rishi Sinat was talking about. You know, we're going to work with the commissioner, with the mayor. You know, there's a, there's lots of people taking responsibility. Sort of the passing risk is part of, nobody, parcel of accountability. Nobody, nobody takes responsibility. You know, because you could legitimately argue that, well, hang on, Sadiq Khan has been responsible for the Met for nearly eight years now. Yeah. What's what's he been doing? You can look to point at Cresta Ditt, you can point at Mark Rowley having been a policeman since 1987 and asked legitimately, is he, as Sean O'Neill writes in this morning's paper, uh, in this morning's Times, is he the right person to take this on? And you can see there is that passing the parcel of accountability from the Prime Minister there. What will be interesting, something ministers were very cautious with yesterday, if not openly dismissive of, was Dame Louise Casey's allegation that austerity had made the problem worse, that cuts to the Met, or rather how the Met had dealt with spending cuts, had made the problem worse. Now, that is something neither Rishi Sunak nor Keir Starmer, who is very keen, as is Rachel Reeves, as is Pat McFadden, the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, to emphasise that, you know, this isn't going to be the land of milk and honey if we get into government. We're not going to have very much money. We're not going to be able to spend our way out of big, knotty problems like this. So it'll be interesting to see, one, if Keir Starmer goes there, because that was one of Dame Louise Casey's findings. And it was clear from Mark Harper, the Transport Secretary's media round yesterday, that he didn't accept that. It'd be interesting to see uh, what Rishi Sunak says if if, uh, the, uh, if Keir Starmer does go there. And, well, and particularly on the, on, the, on the question of austerity, Theresa May was Home Secretary. She's about to write a book about how terrible everything is. Uh, she was Home Secretary um, and told, famously told the Police Federation to stop crying wolf about the impact of cuts. Um... Uh, she said, it doesn't do anyone any good. The truth is that crime fell in each of the years. It's fallen since and our country is safer than it's ever been. So please, for your sake, and for the thousands of police officers who work so hard every day, this crying wolf has to stop. And actually what we've seen since is that large parts of the police force, not just in London but elsewhere, are in a terrible mess and they're now trying to, the, the Tories in particular, trying to make a virtue of rehiring or recruiting officers to replace the ones that Theresa May cut. Well, indeed, and that is part of the problem if you... I think the Times broke this story that if your emphasis is on numbers, is on raw numbers, mm. you know, 30,000 extra police officers, then obviously you're going to relax or take a slightly more relaxed view of who you let in because the emphasis will be on hitting those targets. And I think that's been a complaint from uh, within the force and uh, from uh, from several reports in, in our paper. So, you know, it's... A big, knotty public policy issue that neither side, I think, is going to find particularly easy yeah, yeah. to explain their way out of here. Well, let's go back and see where this goes. Let's go back to the House of Commons then. Uh, this is question number two from Keir Starmer. I take it from that answer that the Prime Minister does accept the Casey findings in full, including the institutional failures. Because nobody reading the Casey report can be left in any doubt about how serious this is and doubt for a second that it's restricted to the Met. The report lays bare how those unfit to join the police are aided by patchwork vetting systems that leave the door open. If the government backed Labour's plan for proper mandatory national vetting, we could end the farce 
that sees different police recruitment standards in different forces. Will he back that plan so we can make speedy progress? Yeah. Prime Minister. Well, Mr. 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 Speaker, there's no need to back that plan because we're already taking action to tackle the issues that are raised in the Casey report. And it was actually two months ago. It was two months ago that I met with Dame Louise Casey and the Metropolitan Commissioner and we introduce a series of measures. For instance, the College of Policing is currently updating the statutory code of practice for police officer vetting that all forces legally have to follow. All police forces are in the process of checking their officers against the police national database, and in weeks, Her Majesty's Independent Inspectorate will report back on their reinspection of all forces vetting procedures. Now, these steps, of course, won't undo the terrible damage that have been previously committed, but we owe this action and more to the victims and survivors to ensure that such tragedies never happen again. What I found interesting about Keir Starmer's question there, he was needling Rishi Sunak on the specific point, does he accept every one of them, including the institutional failings? Suella Bradman, the Home Secretary in the Commons yesterday, saying, well, hang on, hang on, guys, it's really unhelpful to say the police are institutionally anything or institutionally racist. She said institutional is a you know big, ambiguous, contentious word and it's not helpful to use that. So while he's making a... You know, he's going off the Dame Louise Casey thing here. He's also trying to tease out divisions within Rishi Sunat's cabinet. Yeah. And it wouldn't surprise me if he tried to draw that out at the end, saying, you know, you don't agree with your Home Secretary, the woman who's responsible for yeah. you know, implementing this review or overseeing this. How, how can we trust you to, uh, to, um, to, to make sure the Met is, uh, is overhauled? Uh, but, but Labour also, has a plan. It, what seemed, also, well, some people might find this striking is the, the, the reluctance by some to use the phrase institutional. Uh, it, it, actually, Mark Rowley's the same. Mm. Is it's tw 25 years this year since the McPherson report said that the Met was institutionally racist. And the catalogue of racism in the book, in uh, the case review, would suggest that that is still the case, that, it, that, uh, that uh, um, uh, any public sector organ or any organisation that can sustain this culture of racism for 25 years, you think, well, that is pretty institutional. Yeah, you know, look, it looks to be, as Dame Louise Casey said, a pretty textbook case. Yeah. You know, you would, you would offer that as a case study if you wanted to explain to someone what institutional... Yeah, it means that no matter how meant, many people come and go and how much time changes... It's baked into the culture of the organisation. Yeah. Which raises a question, and it'd be interesting to see if Labour's line evolves on this or if Mark Rowley comes under pressure politically, you know, Mark Rowley has been a police officer since 1987, and he has lots of admirers uh, on both sides of the house, but you wonder whether pressure builds now for a genuine outsider, be they from a foreign police force. Remember, Theresa May was obsessed with Bill Bratton, who was the commissioner of the New York oh, City yes, Police when she was Home Secretary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Priti Patel considered hiring a New Zealand uh, police chief to get, get do the job that Mark Rowley eventually got. So it'd be very, very interesting to see whether this plays into speculation or pressure on the Met Commissioner. Well, uh, our colleague Alice Thompson, the Times today, just has put Louise Casey in charge. That actually her, her it was very convincing uh, case. Yeah, her track record on lo uh, all the other work she's done for the gov for governments of various colours and prime ministers. So whenever there is a massive problem in public life yeah. or government, Day Louise Casey comes in. Yeah. Maybe she wouldn't want to do it, but anyway. Uh, let's go back. She's got another report to write, I'm yes, sure. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, let's go back then to the House of Commons then. It's PMQ's unpacked. This is question number three from Keir Starmer. The problem with the Prime Minister's answer is what he's referring to isn't mandatory. How can it possibly be right to have different standards for recruitment in different police forces? 
No wonder the Casey report criticised what she calls the government's hands-off attitude to policing over the last 13 years. But let's call it what it really is, sheer negligence. The report also exposes chronic failures by the police to deal with rape cases, with officers using, and I quote, overstuffed or broken fridges containing the rape kits of victims. On his watch, rape charges are 1.6%. Yet the government still hasn't backed Labour's plan to have proper, high-quality rape and serious sexual offences units in every police force. Why not? Prime Minister. Mr Mr. Speaker, what, what Louise Casey also says is that primary public accountability of the Met sits with the Mayor of London. She described that relationship between the Mayor and the Met as, in her words, dysfunctional. But when it comes... So I I hope when he stands up, he will also confirm to the House that he will take up these matters with the Labour Mayor of London so that he plays his part. But, but Mr Speaker, the way rape victims were treated by the criminal justice system wasn't good enough, and that's why the Government published an ambitious rape review action plan. It's right that we've extended Operation Sorteria across all police forces in the country. We've tripled the number of independent sexual violence advisers. We've improved the process of collecting phone evidence and being cross-examined. And since 2010, we've quadrupled funding for victim support services. That is a Conservative government doing everything we can to support victims and tackle predators. Um, well, there we are. We've got there. It's now it's now Sadiq Khan's fault. Well, exactly, exactly. Passing the parcel of accountability. The shadow cabinet minister I, I was speaking to last night did say they were worried the longer Labour spent trying to score political points on the Met, eventually um, Sadiq Khan's name would come up and not in particularly favourable terms. And this is what Labour think they're vulnerable to come the next London mayoral election next year, which... You know, technical point, but it's being fought on first past the post rather than uh, two rounds of voting. Who oh, is it? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's a very under-spotted constitutional change the well, Conservative somebody, Party as somebody, have made. As somebody who lives outside the... Uh, the London mayoral the, area. The, the London metro. Well, I was going to say metropolitan elite bubble. <laughs> uh, I wasn't across that. You've got a... Um, have you got a Pret in Fleet? <laughs> have we got a Pret? No, we haven't. We have just got a Gales. Sorry, that is the most metropolitan <laughs> elite. There'll be there'll be there'll be thousands of people was, listening who don't even know what a Gales is. Well, no, but don't. Well, I mean, I cost me an absolute. I bought a coffee and a bun in there. Blimey, I had to take out another mortgage. Um, I don't know. We got bogged down in that. Uh, uh, we were talking Sadiq about Khan, Lundman, uh, his uh, vulnerability to a Tory campaign oh, yes. that says crime in London is on the up. Although realistically, you're looking at the polls. There's absolutely no well, way yeah, that exactly. he's, is there. I mean, who well, could he's they been find? There for eight years. I well, there'd have to be a big uh, politician with a big national profile who was also willing to take a risk on running for the Tories in London. With some, with some experience of, of being mayor, maybe? He might find himself at a loose end. Oh, oh. Boris Johnson. That's, oh, that's it. We've sorted it. Sorry, I thought you were talking about former Deputy Mayor for Police in Kit Malthouse. <laughs> the name on everybody's list. He today. could be the Malthouse compromise, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. Slapping our thighs in this. Uh, oh, it's been a long studio. week already. Right, there we go. Uh, this is now. Uh, <laughs> Some, so by the way, someone on the YouTube comments, Kite Loopy, says Fleet is a pretty posh and leafy area. It is. When, 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 I'm not Don't dissent from that. No, no, that's why I live there.
And uh, unlike central London, we can afford to buy a house. Uh, right, let's go back to the House of Commons then. Uh, this... <laughs> Oh, somebody says even Bromley's getting a Gales. So, yeah. there we are. Uh, let's go back to the House of Commons. Uh, I think this is question four from Keir Starmer. People are fed up to the back teeth with a government that never takes responsibility and just tries to blame everyone. They, they can shout. If they're proud, if they're proud of the fact that nine, over 98% of rapists are never put before... If they want to shout about that, that's their record. Let them shout about it. You should be ashamed of yourself. The truth is simple. After 13 years of Tory government, crime is out of control and people are paying the price. Before Christmas, the BBC reported the shocking case of a woman in Armthorpe who had been beaten with a baseball bat by burglars three years ago. Nobody had been charged with that burglary and she couldn't sleep at night. Under their watch, tragically, that's not an unusual case. So can the Prime Minister tell us What's the charge rate for theft and burglary across the country? Prime Minister. Well, Mr. Mr Speaker, actually, since 2019, neighbourhood crime is down by 25%. But he, he asked, he asked, he asked uh, rightly about what's happening with rape cases. So let me, just, let me just tell him that we are on track to meet our target of doubling the number of rape cases that are reaching our court since... Since the Rape Review Action Plan was published, we've seen police referrals double. We've seen charges double. And last year, there was a 65% increase in rape convictions. But importantly, we also changed the law to ensure that rapists would spend more time in prison. But what did his shadow policing policing minister say? Prison doesn't prevent crime. It tells you everything that you need to know about the Labour Party. You can't trust them to keep Britain safe. There we are. Prison Shadow Policing Minister? Uh, Sarah Jones. Sarah Jones, very good. I knew that, obviously. Um, uh, Interesting, Rishi Sunak saying that since 2019, neighbourhood crime uh, is down 29%. Random point in history to choose. <laughs> Presumably because in 2020 most of us were indoors. Yes. But I mean, look, it's helpful if you're <laughs> if you're the if you're the if you're the uh saying, oh judges on our record of the past uh, on crime on the past uh in our past term, given you know crime was yeah, yeah. the centerpiece of Boris Johnson's campaign, it does help as you say that there was an extended period where nobody could leave the house. Yeah. Uh, well famously because um uh Priti Patel boasted that shoplifting was down when most of the shops were shut. <laughs> we'll miss these people when they go. <laughs> uh, there's a big conversation going on on the YouTube channel about Gales. Uh, we don't have a Gales in Oldborough. Uh, we don't even have a Pret either. Oldborough, that's Benjamin Britain country. The one in Ipswich closed, says Graham. Uh, Glenn says there's having a local food bank that distributes Gales buns, make the area up and coming. I'm asking for a friend. Well, it's interesting. I live in Finsbury Park and we got a Gales fairly recently. It's pretty. Uh, used to be pretty rough and ready, Finny P. Johnny's Johnny's boasting they've got two in Maidavale. God, there we are. Uh, and uh, somebody posted a comment saying LBC was. Uh, yeah, Madge says LBC's broadcasting the committee. Yeah, so so are we Madge. In, in full, in full, as Berry's pointed out. So thank you, Madge, for telling. Anyway, and uh, Jonathan says LBC doesn't have Mariella. So good point. Maybe lucky to. 
Don't give them ideas. Go on, question number five. <laughs> question number five. She'd have to speak to members of the public on the phone. She wouldn't like that. Uh, let's go back. <laughs> Is it number five? I think we're on number five. Question number five. Mr Speaker, the, the Prime Minister stands there and pretends that everything's fine. He is so totally out of touch. He needs, he needs to get out of Westminster, get out of Kensington. And, and Mr Speaker, I don't mean... It's a big day today in the House. Lindsay Hoyle. It's a very important day. We do want to make progress. Holding us up is not advantageous to any of us. Telling off the Tory side. Mr though. Speaker, he needs to get out of Westminster, get out of Kensington, and I don't mean to Malibu, to the streets of Britain, go there and tell people it's all fine and see what reaction he gets. The answer he didn't want to give, although he knows it, is 4% of cases, 4% of burglary charges are charged. 96% of theft and burglary cases not even going before the courts. Burglars twice as likely to get away with it now as they were a decade ago. They should be ashamed of that record. And that cul-de-sac in Armforth has apparently seen 10 burglaries in 18 months, but only one of them has resulted in a prosecution. So rather than boasting and blaming others, why doesn't he tell the country when he's going to get the theft and burglary charge rate back to where it was before they wrecked policing? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, first of all, let me say, North Yorkshire is a lot further away than North London. Richard Sinan's an MP in North Yorkshire, of course. That hilarious joke's bringing the house down, apparently. Oh, now Lindsay Hoyle's up. I'd like the lines as well, but I prefer to hear them rather than the jeering. Come on, Prime Minister. Uh, Mr. Not entirely sure that was Nastri, no. Mr. No, then. We are going to make progress. No, he's back up again. Mr. Shelbrook will be buying the teas in the tea room if we're not careful. Come on, Prime Minister. Alex Shelbrook. Alex Shelbrook, Conservative MP. And, and, uh, there'll, there'll be Yorkshire teas, Mr. Speaker. Since, Mr. Speaker, since the Conservatives came into power, crime is down 50%, Mr. Speaker. Violent crime down 40%. Burglary, the Honourable Gentleman mentioned burglary, burglary down 56%. Why? Because we've recruited 20,000 more police officers. We've given them the powers to tackle crime and we've kept serious offenders in prison for longer. All they've done is vote against greater protections for emergency workers. They've opposed tougher sentences for violent criminals, and they are failing to give the police the powers that they need. It's the same old Labour, soft on crime, soft on criminals. There's a lot going on there. I mean, it feels a long time ago that Keir Starmer was taking us on a trip to Malibu, which was actually, you know, the very start of that long and fairly torturous exchange. So um, I th it feels a bit like Keir Starmer might have been stung by the fact that Rishi Sunak keeps saying, I know he doesn't get out of North London very much, try to paint him as, as uh, Boris Johnson used to, the North London uh, the North London lawyer, lefty lawyer. A couple of weeks ago, Rishi Sunak says, I know uh, you may recently made a rare trip out of North London to visit Davos. It's, it's sticky was to be with. So Keir Starmer comes back with, get out of Westminster, get out of Kensington. 
I don't know what that's well, about. Well, that's where he has his Muse house. Oh, is it? Uh, this time last year, I remember Rishi Sunak's wife oh, and children moved out into the Muse house from, yeah. at the height of the controversy about the, the non-don thing. So yeah, that's wait, Rishi Sunak's family pad. And then uh, and he says... He goes um, to Soul Cycle near there, of I course. don't mean to Malibu, he said. It's, it's interesting, though. I was speaking to another... Labour politician yesterday. I'm just trying to justify my expense return. Uh, <laughs> so I'll sign them off. Uh, another, another senior Labour politician yesterday who was saying, I said, what are Keir Starmer's big vulnerabilities? And he said, sorry, they said, they, he or she said, whoever this senior Labour politician <laughs> may be, I'm not going to say who they were. They said, look, Keir still has a problem connecting with our working class target vote and there is a squeamishness about attacking Rishi Sunak on his wealth. Um, and they posited that those attacks, such as those we just heard, are better coming from Angela Rayner, precisely because precisely because um, the Tories can say, well, hang on, yeah, your name yeah. is Sir Keir Starmer, yeah. KC, and you live and in Kentish Town. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, uh, Glenn says, is Malibu a stronger drink than Buckfast? Very nice. Uh, yeah. He also says, dare I say, but Rishi's showing some Bojo Mojo today. He's quite... He is, he's improved as a comments performer. I think he's good a, at PMQs in a way he's not good at speeches. Unspoken, yeah. One of the most unspoken things is that he's really not great at speeches and press conferences. And actually, even to some extent, interviews. But he's quite chipper uh, in the in the comments. And now he's realised the buttons you press to get the Tories shouting. And he make you know, and he makes a joke about North Yorkshire's a lot further than North London. Everyone falls about like it's the funniest uh, thing they've ever heard. What Tory MPs and, and number 10 people say, the, the best environments for Rishi Sunak are sort of Q&As mm. or sort of conversations with, well, not conversation with all members of the public, but he's better in conversation, yeah. you know, answering questions, you know, maybe the conversation like this than he is we, giving a set piece It wouldn't work speech. if we got him in to do PMQs on Pat, would it? Ooh. <laughs> we could do a historical PMQs on <laughs> Pat, historical. Uh, Somebody in Hove's got in touch. We've got a Gales in Hove. Great leaf to know there's somewhere convenient to buy a £12 loaf. <laughs> You'll be lucky if you get one that cheap. In fact, once, not long after the girls opened near us, we were walking, we were going out for dinner one night, and the woman appeared at the door and said, Do you want a loaf of bread? And they were giving it away. Did you take it? Yeah, I'm there every night now, seven o'clock, <laughs> in a variety of disguises. <laughs> oh, yes, well, I'll have a loaf of bread. Uh, right, <clears throat> very good. Um, uh, that's probably enough of that. Let's go back to the House of Commons for the final exchange. Uh, see um, <laughs> who speaks the most. Is it uh, Rishi Sunak, Lindsay Hoyle, or Keir Starmer? The only criminal investigation he's ever been involved in is the one that found him guilty of breaking the law. <laughs> I, I've prosecuted countless rapists. On the prime minister, I want officer. Hold up. I am determined to hear the question. Lizzie Hoyle again. The leader of the opposition, the prime minister. So I can. Sorry. I think you'll be. I think you've got your first customer for tea, Mr. Kurtz. We keep having this little problem. We'll have no more. Alan Cairns, I think. No, like that, the just a moment. So please, let's get through and let's just show some respect to both people at dispatch boxes. Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I've prosecuted countless rapists and I support tougher sentences. But you have to catch the criminals first. And when 98% of rapists are not even being put before the court, that's a massive failure on the government. And if he wants to go to Armfort, which is in Yorkshire, why doesn't he go to that cul-de-sac when he gets out and about in Yorkshire and, and, and ask them about those 10 burglaries that haven't been prosecuted? The reality is, after 13 years of Tory government, they've done nothing on standards. Neighbourhood policing has been shattered. 
and burglars and rapists walk the streets with impunity. It's the same every week from the Prime Minister, whether it's the cost of living crisis, crime running out of control or the state of the NHS. Why is his answer always to tell this British people they've never had it so good? Mr. Mr. Speaker, let me just address the the issue the Honourable Gentleman raised, because I said at the time I respected the decision the police reached and I offered an unreserved apology. But but for the avoidance of doubt, Mr. Speaker, at the moment that happened, there was a full investigation by a very senior civil servant. The findings of which which confirmed that I had no advanced knowledge about what had been planned, having arrived early for a meeting. But he doesn't, need, he doesn't need me to tell him that. He's probably spoken to the report's author much more frequently than I have. Sue Gray, of course. Mm. It's like a weird cul-de-sac to disappear, though. We're all about cul-de-sacs today. Lou, oh. the Prime Minister needs to answer Lindsay the question. Lindsay up again. He doesn't need you to... Oh, oh, I don't think we need any more. Let's keep it that way. Prime Minister... Is he on the Malibu? Mr Speaker, we're getting on. We're halving inflation by paying 50% of people's energy bills and freezing fuel duty. We're cutting... Oh, and it's the same for this side. Mr Gwynne, I don't need any more from the That's backbenchers here. Andrew Gwynne now being told off. Can I just say, let's come... Mr Fabricant, not again. Concerned for me, Michael Fabricant. He's going to name all 650 this very big day. Some important, important decisions are going to be taken. So, please, I want to get this house moving on. Stop talking, Prime Minister. <laughs> Today's a very big day, so I need to be on telly as much as possible. We're also cutting NHS waiting lists by resolving pay disputes and getting doctors back to work. And, Mr Speaker, we're stopping the boats with a new bill to tackle illegal migration. That's a Conservative government delivering on the people's priorities. Yeah! <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to... Well, interesting that Sunak would rattle through his five pledges on the day that inflation has gone yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the other interesting thing I picked out about half an hour ago before Lindsay Hoyle, you know, read out Roth's parliamentary profiles <laughs> was Keir Starmer saying, I've prosecuted countless rapists. Yeah. Keir Starmer, the lawyer, Keir Starmer, the politician, where does one end, where does one begin? You can pose that question start about his rhetorical style, but clearly Labour are going to make much of his record as director of public prosecutions at the next election. That does leave them vulnerable to the sort of reply that says, well, hang on, you say you prosecuted countless rapists. What about you not prosecuting this person, not prosecuting that well, person? Well, as someone's just said uh, on the YouTube channel, too bad that someone did not prosecute Jimmy Savile, which is a... there's a, there's a, a Well, there's a big argument about whether one can level that accusation. Yes. Uh, and Keir Starmer was not directly involved in that. But if you're Keir Starmer and you're saying, I was head of the CPS yeah. for however long... And you take credit for all of that. Yeah, I yeah. take credit for that. Then, the word. You know, it leaves it does leave him vulnerable to attacks, spurious or not, from the Tory benches as someone... Uh, close to Keir Starmer, put it to me. I'm sure CCHQ already have a file yeah, yeah. of their of Keir Starmer's legal campaign, according to legal career, according to Rishi Sunak. And you know, Labour are going to have to make a strategic decision about what to rebut, what to take on, what to have a big argument over. And you know, when they're arguing on their own terms, saying you know the Tories will be gone crime. Look, we've got a you know a uh, guy who banged up countless people yeah. as DPP is one thing. But then you go further into his. History as a it human rights lawyer. It opens up his CV. Yeah, is, exactly. Is being fair game. Exactly. Being fair game.
Well, there we are. That brings us to the end of uh, PMQ. Thank goodness. It's now uh, nearly 10 p.m. after <laughs> all of the interventions from Lindsay, Lindsay Hall. Lindsay Hall has just celebrated his 100th birthday. Yeah, Lindsay Hall is obviously being sponsored by how many times could he mention tea? Uh, uh, join PMQs and sending people off to have cups of tea in the tea room. Uh, right, last bit was watching uh, the uh, the best of the rest so that you don't have to. Uh, Lara, what caught your eye? Hi, Matt. Um, as per usual, Stephen Flynn caught my eye. He catches yeah. my eye every single week. But his uh, first question was about the Windsor framework and the vote that we'll see this afternoon. Uh, and his second question was uh, what we typically see, which is a sort of summation of the general problems that he thinks are facing the country, followed by uh, one sort of slightly pithy uh, final quote. And I thought the interesting thing about this that we'll listen to uh, now is Rishi Sunak's uh, response to this, in which he says that the final... <laughs> is the, the most important priority of the people is, is stopping the vote, which basically is obviously in intervention of every opinion poll that we see which either puts the NHS or the cost of living crisis at the top of people's priority but I think it speaks to probably what he's yeah. been thinking about quite a lot recently and I just think a kind of classic exchange between the two that's worth listening to so if we have that. Let's take a listen. Mr Speaker the reality is that whilst Westminster is once again consumed by the damage being caused by Brexit yeah, yeah. the public at home are facing the biggest fall in living standards yeah. ever the highest tax burden since the end of the Second World War, and inflation at 10.4%. When are the Conservative Party, and indeed the Labour Party, going to realise that Brexit can't work? Mr. Mr Speaker, the actions that this government is taking are ensuring that fully half of most families' energy bills are being supported by this government. We're also making sure that we're delivering for people with the cutting NHS waiting lists, and that's something that we're happy to work with the Scottish Government to learn and share best practice with them on. But we're also, Mr Speaker, delivering on the people's number one priority, which is to stop the boats and end illegal migration. That was uh, the SNP leader in Westminster, uh, Stephen Flynn, and uh, Rishi Sunak's response. What do you make of that, Patrick? Well, look, I think Stephen Flynn um, is on to is onto something in terms of keeping his own party's coalition yeah. together. You know, it's about the only safe subject he can <laughs> he can go on at the moment. Given given that the uh, given the that SAP all else is falling else yeah, yeah. Uh, falling else uh, uh, all else is falling apart about him. Uh, you know, he's he's on relatively safe ground there. It exposes Tory divisions. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's about the only day this week that you can point to the Conservative Party and say it's as divided as the SNP, as the <laughs> SNP leader. Because that vote is coming on the uh, on the Windsor framework this afternoon. Uh, what else do, caught your eye, Lon? So this is a very interesting question uh, from Conservative backbencher Sir Jeremy Wright, uh, who asked after a constituents, constituent who he claimed had been seriously injured as a result of a COVID vaccine uh, and raised a question about the compens possible compensation schemes that we're seeing for this. Obviously a very sensitive issue and the response by Rishi Sunak was a particularly delicate one. So I think if we'll listen to this, it, it would be particularly interesting. Speaker, my constituent Jamie Scott spent four weeks in a coma and remains seriously disabled as a result of a COVID vaccination. He and his family continue to believe that mass vaccination is the right policy, but it must also surely be right to ensure that those, that tiny minority who are seriously injured as a result are properly compensated. In the absence of court cases, it's in no one's interest to litigate. The current limit on compensation is £120,000, even for very serious and lifelong injury, and anyone who is disabled by less than 60% gets nothing at all. That cannot be right. Will my right honourable friend look urgently at changing it? Yeah. 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 
Mr Speaker, it is important to start by recognising the importance of vaccines in protecting us all, and not least the fantastic rollout of the COVID vaccines across the UK. Um, but I am very sorry to hear about the case that my right honourable friend raises. In the extremely rare case of a potential injury from a vaccine covered by the scheme, a one-off payment can be awarded. Uh, this is not designed to be a compensation scheme, and it does not prevent the injured person in pursuing a legal compensation claim with the vaccine manufacturer. We are taking steps to reform vaccine damage payment schemes by modernising the operations and providing more timely outcomes. But, of course, I'll be happy to talk to the Honourable Gentleman further about it. Reading to that, because, you know, clearly we know so many millions and millions of people have had uh, vaccines. They say that the risk, you know, it's not a, there's no risk, but it's a very small risk for a small number of people. But clearly there needs to be something done about those people. And both Jeremy Wright and Richard Sunak there being very careful. About not, the language. About the language. Not to get into Andrew Bridgen territory, uh, where, you know, because he had a debate, I think, last week on, on the same thing. You know, this isn't anti-vaxxing. This is some people which they completely understand, uh, have uh, suffered side effects and they ought to be looked after. Yeah, and in this case, uh, you know, it seems serious injury. So it will be interesting to hear um, how that line develops because obviously you heard Rishi Sunak there saying that, uh, you know, individuals are free to pursue compensation claims with the vaccine manufacturers themselves. Now, I haven't found the details of this particular mm. uh, case, so I'm not sure who the manufacturer in this instance is, but obviously it is pretty famously hard to bring a successful compensation case yeah. against. And this. it takes so, a really long time and it costs you loads of money. Exactly. So whether or not this was within the government's um, scheme, unclear, but I think it will be interesting to see whether or not more of these cases uh, are raised. It'll be interesting to see whether or not Rishi Sunak changes his uh, position on this if that becomes the case. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.